All right, Abdul has some questions for you, Tom. Please go ahead. This question is regarding past lives and their impact on our current selves. In one of your interviews, you said that the average person has lived through a thousand lives. If that were the case, I should have been a lot wiser and competent at things like dealing with stress, relationships, or materialist abilities such as making money and work ethic. A thousand lives or so should have upgraded me from mediocrity to a lot more wiser and competent state. Am I an outlier or is this generally the case that past lives do not improve our capabilities by much and we need to redevelop competencies such as business acumen? This is question number one. Yes. Um... Growing up is hard to do, and changing yourself is hard to do. And most people, because they're not aware of the game that they're in, don't really grow up that much. They just kind of wander around cluelessly in the playing field, and, you know, that's it. Next life, they wander around cluelessly in the playing field again, and so on. But now once you understand that lowering entropy and raising, you know, the quality of your consciousness is the game, now you can start to grow up a lot more each lifetime. So it becomes the learning rate and the change rate becomes a lot, a lot better, a lot steeper. So most people, most of the time are unaware and they don't really make a whole lot of progress. And I, when I said a thousand, I just made that up, you know, large number. I have no idea what the average, you know, number of uh, that's, I just, uh, it's a lot. Look at the progress humans have made in growing up and producing a very happy, uh, supportive, cooperative environment for themselves over the last 200,000 years. And you'll see that, you know, 200,000 years, you think we would have evolved as a species a little more than what we have. But you look at our growth that we have made, you'll see all, most all of it's been in the last I blink of that 200,000 years. Most of it's been as a species gotten kinder and gentler just in the last several centuries. Well, a century is nothing to 200,000 years. That's just a hundred years. That's an eye blink. So yes, the good news is that the more you grow up, the easier it is to grow up even more. It accelerates. All right. Um, so my second question, it, it's more like a statement, and uh, I just I, was, I wanted your response on this. Um, so this is regarding cultural evolution um, and its pace. Modern society in many ways is the result of classical liberalism, which was an outcome of Enlightenment ideas such as religious tolerance, pluralism, ascendance of the scientific method, and separation of uh, church and state. While Western mm -hmm. Europe was first to adopt such ideas, Many cultures and countries have failed to adopt these progressive modes of thought. They are gaining importance, but very slowly. Even the so-called democratic countries in the developing world continue to be thoroughly corrupt, extremely incompetent when it comes to governance, and challenging dogma remains unacceptable. Considering the fact that we live in the era of mass communication, which lets people see what other functional societies look like, why are so many countries, and more importantly, people, struggling to adopt these progressive ideas and not organizing um, to demand better uh, governance from their leaders. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, the thoughts on that are really a repeat of the thoughts on the last question, and that is the, the culture is a collective consciousness. The culture is made up, you know, of the people, both 
past and present. And, well, I shouldn't say that. The culture is the, is the vector sum of all the quality of consciousness, we say, that's in that culture, that feels like they belong to that culture. And the way that people are now is also a strong part of that is what was in the past. They follow what they know. They follow traditions. They follow the ideas their parents had and their grandparents had. So there's a strong uh, bias to repeat the past. So the culture reflects the people in it. And the reason that the cultures don't seem to have become kinder, gentler, more cooperative and caring spaces is because the people haven't grown up that much. When the people do grow up, it'll change. So we take the, the average quality of consciousness is not all that high. But it has been growing up noticeably uh, in the last several centuries, you know, last, what, somewhere between, you know, two or 300 years, maybe 500 years ago, it's been growing up. And that enlightenment you talk about, you know, it, it occurred during that period, and it did make an impact, but it didn't fix things. It, it's not that quick. People have to change who they are. And often, when people meet a set of new ideas like the the enlightenment that we that we passed through uh, coming out of the <laughs> dark ages pretty much that is often taken in intellectually and then people behave better but that doesn't mean that they grow up much our behavior tends to tends to follow the intellect. So we understand cooperation is a good thing. We understand that caring and, you know, separating, uh, you know, religion and state and so on. We, we realize that these are, are good ideas for a social system, but we can then behave better. But if it doesn't actually change who we are, then we appear more civilized and we appear like we've grown some but the growth is actually less than that. Our culture, our level of politeness, our uh, sense of saying please and thank you and, you know, not interrupting and, you know, all the things we learn in, in elementary school, right, about being polite. All of those are social niceties that people learn and it modifies their behavior and it makes us more civilized and makes us able to, you know, interact socially much more effectively. But that's not the same as growing up, changing who you are. And you'll notice that when things get really, really bad, when things are very tough, when it gets back down to the survival mode, that thin veneer of, of civilization often melts away. It's not that thick. It's not so much who we are as how we've learned to act. So that's why. So you see that we seem to be making progress, but then really not so much. That this growing up is a difficult thing to do. Changing who we really are. Changing our behavior is civilizing. It's nice to be nice. It's nice to act as if you're caring. But being caring and being kind are different than acting 
like you're carrying your acting kind. So fortunately, a lot of people are acting even before they grow up. Fortunately, it makes this place a lot nicer place to live because of all that acting. Yeah, that's good. But it doesn't mean that they've changed. Some people have changed. We have grown the quality of our consciousness. It's not that we haven't made any change. It's just that change is slow. And often acting precedes being. We may have to act it for a century or more before we actually, or some of us, actually begin to be it. So the acting is good, but it's not enough. Awesome. Thank you. And lastly, just um, would you recommend to anybody else on YouTube who understands uh, the larger reality system? Um, I've often found that people are not very clear when they talk about, uh, at least not as clear as you are. Would you recommend anyone else that we can listen to? Uh, about a larger consciousness system. This is a virtual reality and consciousness is, is the computer. That's kind of unique out there. You don't find a lot of people going down that path. You'll find a lot of people saying virtual reality is a good idea these days, but you won't find very many of those. It's because consciousness is the computer. They don't have, they don't see that step. So I'm pretty much alone in, in that philosophy, that attitude, other than the people who have read my big toe and have taken it up and understand it well. Um, but there's a lot of good people out there who say good things, who seem to understand bigger pictures, but they tend to not have the whole picture. You know, um, oh, now the name escapes me. There's a, a German um, writer who basically is self-help and how to live your life more profitably and how to get along with people and ways to be and ways not to be. Somebody give me some help. Who is that? Eckhart Tolle? Eckhart. Yeah, Eckhart Tolle, yeah. So Eckhart Tolle, you know, most of the things Eckhart Tolle says are, are correct. And um, he has a good understanding of, you know, right from wrong and, and things that work and things that don't work. So, you know, I recommend him, but he doesn't have the bigger picture. He doesn't see that in a context of, you know, a virtual reality, you know, the, the beginning of existence consciousness um his Eckhart Tolle's uh, uh ideas will not solve you know quantum physics problems it won't tell you why c is a constant you know so it's not the big picture but you have a lot of people out there you know hundreds maybe thousands of people out there who have a pretty good understanding of the of the fact that love is the answer and it's about caring it's about other um that's not that uncommon I think you can find that many places. Uh, even a lot of the the uh, material that is what uh, channeled. You know, you have uh, Seth Speaks. You know, it was channeled back in the early '70s, and since then, there's all sorts of of uh, channelers who channel, you know, wisdom from the beyond kind of thing. And there's quite a few of those that mostly get a lot of it right. Well, they get pieces of it wrong, just as Seth did, got a few pieces wrong too. But there's a lot of good material out there. I don't think any of it is comprehensive. It's all focused on a very, you know, on, on a subset of issues, like how to get along with each other. You know, Eckhart Tolle tells us how to do that very nicely. 
and most of his ideas, uh, he has one or two ideas of the things he said I would probably disagree with and say, no, it's not like that. But, you know, most of it, he talks truth and it works. So he's not the only one there, though. Like I say, you'll find hundreds of people who understand how we need to interact, how we need to act in order to interact more profitably. But I don't know of anybody else that actually has that in a whole, you know, theory of everything that takes us from the, you know, from the beginning and and answers questions of, you know, what's our purpose here and, and you know, how to derive physics and explaining the paranormal. Those are things that these people generally do not explain. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, if, if they can go out of body or, you know, they have access to this information, but why do they not have the knowledge that you do? Well, a couple of reasons. You know, we as a culture, well, not our culture. I mean, we everybody's culture is a little different, but, but uh, kind of Western culture, I would say, which is now pretty much world culture. You know, it's very consumer and, and economic-based. It's it's uh, about stuff more than it is about other things. And we develop people who have the ability to intellectualize. Okay, now some of them aren't real good at it, uh, but we we teach kids from early grades, you know, how to how to think intellectually, how to solve problems intellectually, but we don't teach children, how to develop their intuitive side. Matter of fact, science would tell you that you don't have an intuitive side. That's all just wishful thinking. That's just something you make up. The intuition is 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 an illusion. So we don't develop that intuitive side, that that ability to connect with information, to, to see and hear and feel things that are beyond the physical. You see, so because we don't value that, and when people just become that way naturally, we make fun of them. We call them airheads. You know, we, uh, you know, we tend to give them a bad reputation because what sells in Western culture is intellectual knowledge that makes money. So if what you do is CRs and talk to the talk to dead people, then you're not valued very highly. And a large part of the population sees you as a, as a charlatan. So that's why, you know, we, we, people don't develop that way because the culture really inhibits it, doesn't value it. And people are not taught to develop their intuitive side. Now I got there because one, I came in very intuitive person. I was a very right brain little kid. And I realized that in order to do what I needed to do in this uh, experience packet, I had to develop the left side of my brain. I had to develop the logical side that was going to be necessary. And I found it difficult. I had to work hard at that. But eventually I got it. And, you know, mathematics became easy and I understood it. But all of that took a lot of struggle. 
but I still had that intuitive side pretty strongly inside. And then, uh, you know, when I uh, started working with Bob Monroe, that then gave me a platform in which I could, I already was the, was the physicist, you know, at a graduate level. So now I had the chance to kind of study consciousness, study the out of body and the, and healing and remote viewing and other paranormal things from the inside out. And then I spent years doing that. So, you know, 20, what, 35 years later, I think I know enough to write a book. Well, that's 35 years later. You know, that's a lot of research. So that kind of dual career of spending 35 years, both as a physicist and a consciousness explorer, is pretty uncommon. Most uh, scientists, most physicists uh, would never go. Uh, you know, study consciousness because that's not science. That's subjective. Science is objective. So that's why I've kind of unique that way. I came in right, learned the left. Now I'm both. I'm extremely right brain and extremely left brain, both at the same time. And that's kind of an oddity in our culture. And because I had a left brain career physics that paid all the bills, I could afford to develop the the right part of myself because I had a left part that was that was uh, taking care of business. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Abdul. Nathan has a question for you, Tom. This is Nathan, and I had a question around seeing auras or halos around people, and wonder if you could give some feedback. Um, it's not something I can do at will, but it's happening more spontaneously, and I'm staying skeptical because I know there's all sorts of uh, sort of, you know, visual inputs or hallucinations that aren't really data out there. Um, mm. So I haven't had any experiences that tell me whether it's internally generated or externally received, but um, I'm kind of just checking it out. And it's such a new sort of playing field for me, honestly. I, I'm just wondering how to be productive with it and, how to use it in a way that can help me understand the larger picture at a being level, some, uh, you know, experimental, you know, validation, or to use it to help people, which is my profession. And maybe I can use it to connect and help on various levels. Uh, I'm just kind of finding myself in a new, new territory and a little map would be helpful. Mm -hmm. I remember being there. Yeah. That uh, I'd say uh, at least what I did is just play with it, play with it. Um, be slow to come to conclusions. I remember when I first saw, saw auras, I started looking then for auras on other things. I looked at the, a clock on the wall and said, oh, is there any, can I see any fields or energy or whatever I call it? Those are all metaphors, fields, energy, whatever. Uh, is there something around that? And I noticed that there was, and I noticed that I could see um, or is around power lines and I could see it not just around people, but trees, trees had it. And then I just played with it and say, well, what does it mean? And uh, one of the steps forward I had was when somebody, uh, Dennis actually gave me a picture and he said, here's a picture that there's, there were five people in the picture. He says, one of those is a psychic. Can you tell me which one? So then I started, you know, looking at the auras of each person in the picture. And there was one of them that was obviously very different. So I picked that one and that one was the one. 
So that was, a, oh, you can do this with photographs. I didn't know that. I thought you just had to look at a thing, and a thing had the aura about it. I didn't realize you could look at photographs. I thought it had to be something that was in your view, that you were actually seeing something that was there, some kind of etheric field that other people didn't see, but you now had a, a sensory ability to sense things that were there. And it isn't like that at all. You're seeing auras as getting data out of a database. That's all it is, just like remote viewing, getting data out of a database. So instead of remote viewing places and things, you're remote viewing qualities like emotions or feelings or um, you know, spiritual development or health. You're, it's just remote viewing in a, in a different way. And your images, instead of being pictures, are color, colorful. Or sometimes they're not, they don't have color, but they can have color, you know, let's say around an individual. So I just learned by trial and error and trying to make sense out of it. You can read books, like uh, you can get a book by C.W. Ledbetter uh, called Man Visible and Invisible. And he was clairvoyant, right? Clair yeah, clairvoyant. That means you see things. And he made a lot of pictures of things. And because many people, you know, he, he had color plates in it. This was done back in the late 1800s, and that book is still published today. I'm trying to think of the people that do that. Uh, I don't know. Now that escaped me too. It's been a long time. But so you can find those sorts of things. Just experiment and play and see what does it mean. And I know I took a long. I, it took me a while just looking at auras around people before I decided that I made sense that when people were upset. They had certain kind of differences than people who were happy. So I made up my own interpretations of what the colors meant and what the, the auras meant. And then when I read Ledbetter's, you know, I could kind of compare what my assessments were of the meaning of things with what his were. Eventually, I realized that the colors are not set. That's an output format, and you can set that output format. So whereas, you know, if you look at Ledbetter's book, he had big zigzaggy like this red things going around the person, and that was anger. But that was just his default output format. I could say, well, I want anger to be black zigzags. And now when I get the data, an angry person will have black zigzags. So the colors aren't fundamental. You realize that when you get data out of the database, you get to specify the output format. <laughs> what things mean what? What do the colors mean? And you can make up your own, and you will consistently get things that are in your own, you know, with your own colors. So that's even the colors are not fundamental. So nothing about it is fundamental other than the fact that you're using your intent to get data from the database. And just because you see ours doesn't mean you'll be good at remote viewing. It's two different kinds of things. But that you see ours will probably make it easier for you to develop remote viewing, but it doesn't automatically make you good at it. So it's a, it's a way of relaxing. You'll notice that when you see these ours, you kind of have to slip into a, a very relaxed, blank state.
a state of openness, a state of letting information come to you. It's not a state of you going out and getting it. It's a state of letting it come to you. Well, that's just getting yourself into the being level or into the intuitive level and letting the information flow. The information comes based on your intention. What is it that you want to know? Do you want to know somebody's health? Well, you know, the the classical way is that black things represent bad health and white things represent good health, but you could do just the opposite and it would work just fine. So you get to set the output format. So play with it. Just the things I've already told you in the last 10 minutes are things that probably took me a year worth of playing with it to figure out. So you'll be able to figure out things like that yourself. And it doesn't have, you know, don't think of it as fundamental stuff that is the same for everybody. It'll be similar for some people because we have similar metaphors that we use. But it won't necessarily be the same. And that's not then if you're different than other people, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It's just mean your metaphors are different than theirs. Play with it. Well, thanks, Tom. Appreciate your feedback. And yeah, sounds like just something to have fun with and play with and, you know, saving me a little bit of time with uh, kind of some recommendations in your experience. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you will find that it will be very helpful with with your clients. If what you do is help people, you will be able to tell an awful lot about those people that you wouldn't have through just physical means. And that can be very helpful. I remember Ledbetter in his book, he was also a teacher and he had students. And he said that uh, he could tell that somebody was lying instantly because of the way the colors would change. And he's looking at their orders. He knew that somebody was telling the fibs. Says, Oops, that's not true, you know. <laughs> he, could, he could see that change in, the, in, their, in their aura. Well, if you want that information, like he did, he requested that sort of information, then you can get that sort of information. So what kind of information would you like to know about your clients that would help you help them? You see, well, you can start defining that to where that information comes up and you get that and you can get it in terms of color. If you like that output, uh, you don't have to use colors as an output, but uh, that, that works. So you can use it to learn about what's inside your, your clients, how they feel. Um, but even beyond feeling, you know, attitudes and, other things, how open are they? How closed are they? You know, what's the state of their physical health? All sorts of things will uh, help you be helpful to other people. And that is the right reason for getting this data, mm-hmm. is getting it so that you can help other people. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder, because uh, i actually forgotten. Uh, part of my process with my clients is they'll share something, you know, really from the heart or meaningful, but I don't have a response. So I just, for this blip moment, like I sort of reach for something somewhere from the system, maybe, or wherever. I'm like, what could just come out of my mouth that would be, you know, something useful for this person? And and more times than not, it's helpful. And so I'm trying to develop other ways of like, you know, give someone support that is less from my intellect, more, less and less, and more and more from, you know, a different place in me or 
I can be a conduit, so to speak, for something else, just to give support to this person. Yeah, you'll find that that if you work basically and most fundamentally from the intuitive side and just let the intellectual side be be the side that kind of packages it and delivers it, but that you're actually working mostly from the intuitive side. Mm-hmm. The, the intellectual side has to organize it and has to structure and, and say the right things in the right sequence in the right way. But the intuitive side gathers all the information. And eventually it won't only be your, your life as, as helping people, but it'll be your life in general will work that way. So I think it, at least that's the way it's turned out for me that you live your life in an intuitive space, but you use your intellect to interact with other people appropriately. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It helps me bridge the relationship between the intellect and the intuitive. And and now I feel like a like a sort of rejuvenation or enthusiasm for helping folks. And like, oh, there's like ways of growing and exploring how to do that through these other means. And and almost like partnering with the system to do it. Like, you know, like there's this co-joining with the system to help someone. And that just feels exciting. So I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying this a lot. Yeah, great. Yeah, you'll see it'll just get better and better and more and more useful as the more you use it. Cheers. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, C.W. Ledbetter's Man, Visible, Invisible is published by the Theosophical Heritage Classics. He was part of the Theosophical um, Society then in the 1800s. Quest. Venetian, sorry? Quest. That's Quest Books. Quest. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's quest. That, uh, yeah. Quest. I had, I had one, one source is Theosophical Heritage Classics, but the publisher yeah. then Quest. Okay. Quest. Very good. Um, Vinicius has another question. Please go ahead. Yeah. So I'm still thinking about this entropy being a function, and we can kind of sample with consciousness. So it's kind of like a follow up on the previous mm-hmm. uh, questions. So I'll read my question. Sampling functions without bias often require randomness, which enables a function to be sample while minimizing its errors. One example in which this fails is in our computer screens. Regularly spaced pixels in a lattice configuration produce a sampling structure that exhibits artifacts in special circumstances. This is known, this is known as aliasing. And uh, there's a picture that I sent there. But the idea is that checkerboard patterns on a plane, when rendered on a computer screen, will start to create errors on the plane horizon. Mm-hmm. And randomness might be hence randomness might be fundamental to correct sample a function without any bias. Uh, do you think the system uses randomness to its advantage to properly sample some sort of uh, uh, consciousness functions? Um, or is it fear related to noise or randomness? Or uh, is it fear more related to strategies and consciousness that lead to less optimal configurations? Probably yes to all of the above. Um, let's see. Fear is related to noise and randomness. You know, fear leads to high entropy. High entropy interactions, high entropy means less order, less meaningful, you know, uh, less ability to do work. 
Okay, so those two are definitely uh, related. Um, yes, the system uses randomness in its in its uh, you know in its computations because our reality is a probabilistic reality, not a a uh, what do we call it deterministic. So our our reality, this virtual reality, isn't computed from elementary particles up. It's commuted. It's computed from probability distributions down. You see, so that means it's going to use randomness. You know, if you're using probability, then you're going to have some some randomness in there. That's part of the as part of the probability. You generally assess probability compared to randomness. You know, that's kind of how it's defined, right? Um, statistical significance is defined as compared to randomness. So, yes, I think that um, it does use those sorts of things, those ideas. But another thing it uses, of course, to eliminate things like uh, aliasing is it it, loses, it uses a very, very fine resolution. And when you have a very, very fine resolution, aliasing at our level disappears. That's a, that has to do with the, the problems of pixels. You see, it's a, it's a pixel issue. And when the pixels are so tiny that uh, you don't get those pixel issues anymore. So it's, and, and, uh, it also has to do with the time, you know, the refresh rate is a part of your aliasing, you know, that refresh, that refresh rate. And the refresh rate is so fast, that delta T, 10 to the minus 44 seconds, that is so fast. And the resolution is so good that it really doesn't run into issues like aliasing in our, in our reality because it's... Um, you know, you don't get aliasing when you when you have very low res, low res, uh, low res uh, things, and low picture rates. Well, I guess you do, but it's just you just don't notice it because it's so big. It's so much part of your picture. But anyway, yes, it does all those things. It uh, you know, it's it's interesting from and with the questions you asked earlier. It's really interesting how if you understand information theory and how information works, you can understand an awful lot about our virtual reality because it is a computed reality. And this metaphor of, of the larger conscious system being an information system and being a computer really does lend itself to understanding, you know, the nature of reality. Yeah. So yeah, the question, this question, and the ones you asked before, uh, actually kind of point that out. This this connection between, you know, what you what you talk about before was you know optimization theory. You know, those kinds of theories, which that optimization is almost always done in a computer. You're talking about uh, you know optimization, not analytically, like taking derivatives and finding you know when the when the uh, um, the, the tangent, you know, has zero slope, you know, that's an analytic optimization, but you're talking about um, working the problem in the computer, digital simulation, and a lot of the things that are artifacts 
of the way information processing works are also artifacts of the way our reality works. There's a big overlay there. Um, so, okay, so maybe stretching it, since you mentioned a little bit the optimization stuff, um, the, if you think about even how the way that we solve in computers, right? So if you, if you just conjure your gradient and we estimate the, the gradients with some certain orders, and it's interesting that uh, lower order gradients only estimate information around you. So we can say that's kind of like ego. And that tends to get stuck into local minima because you're just looking around yourself and mm -hmm. then you're going into this stuff. Right, but and those local minima are like beliefs. You, know? yeah, you, yeah. Get, you get trapped in your own beliefs. Yes, there's a lot of analogs between yeah. uh, computer science and, and a virtual reality because virtual realities are basically computed things mm -hmm. and also but you can't estimate higher order but that means you need information further away from you mm -hmm. so it's kind of like you're expanding your yourself to consider more people not only you and then right. you can kind of get away from that so and you could say that's um a a, a connection there is decision space the larger your decision space then you know the better able you are to uh uh, evolve the quality of your consciousness. You know, you get good answers. It's when your decision space is very small, it means you're in a belief trap. That gives you a much smaller decision space than the amount of, of information available to you that you're working on is small and you end up in, uh, uh, right, local environment that's local because that's your ego. That's, that's the little world you live in. Yeah, a lot of analogs here. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Numerical, numerical processes, as opposed to analytical processes, share a lot with all information systems. You know, some things about computer are just inherent to computation. And those things are going to show up in our virtual reality, as well as show up when we work with our virtual computers. Thanks, Tom. All right, Tom, that's all of the questions from the audience that we have here present. I do have some MBT forum questions that we can go to. Question from Ghost from the forum. And you've spoken a lot about this, especially recently. So when we put this fireside chat up, we will connect it to some of the other discussions you've had. How many PMRs are there? And then is it a finite number or is it infinite? And does every PMR have a unique own history, uh, different country names, businesses, technologies, and even the formation of the continents of the planet? Um, well, okay. How, how many uh, PMRs are there? Well, certainly it's not infinite, and it's not even a real large number. Um, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, and I would have to have known that I have been to every PNMR that there was or that there is. And I don't know that. And there's no way that I will ever know that. So it's not an answer I can give you directly. But a PMR is a rather big thing. That's a tight rule set simulation. And it's pretty costly as far as computer resources to run one. And if you were the larger consciousness system, you would only make as many of those as you absolutely needed. So I've been to, 
I don't know, it'd take me a while before I go back and sort all through that again, but let's say a dozen. And that's a pretty small number compared to infinity. So I don't think there are thousands or tens of thousands. And the reason I don't think that, that's because the reason for the PMR is to give individuated units of consciousness more meaningful choices, choices with with repercussions, choices with consequences, moral choices, ethical choices, choices which can help you grow up. And if you're in a larger conscious system and you have a lot of IUOCs that you'd like to help grow up and you'd like to put them into these these, um, entropy reduction trainers, virtual reality trainers, well, how many do you need? You see, for every system that's, you know, that is what, uh, you know, creating change for itself. And that change, of course, is here is judged by lowering entropy. That's the change it's creating. What value do you get toward lowering entropy in your system? For what cost does it take to, you know, have another person as a, as a, uh, you know, logged on in a virtual reality. So everybody that logs on to a virtual reality, every IUOC logged on to an avatar takes a certain amount of overhead from the, from the computer that's serving that virtual reality. It's not for free. Now there's another person and all the interactions that person has with everybody else. All of that has to be now dealt with. So there's a cost. What's the what's the advantage? Well, you'll have one more IUOC in the entropy reduction trainer. Well, now we just can scale that, and it scales up pretty well for a while, but eventually you'll get to the point that adding another IUOC logged on to a character in one of your virtual realities returns less to the system as far as percent of system growth as that character grows up then it costs the system to support that character. So somewhere there's a sweet spot that says the system gets the, the, the maximum amount. This is one of these optimization problems that uh, we were just talking about. There's a maximum amount of entropy reduction for the amount of, of effort or for the amount of computing, amount of processing that goes into, into these virtual realities. So that's why I would say that there's probably not a very large number. We got seven and a half billion of us right here. If there was seven and a half billion plus one, would the system get that much more return from that extra one or would serving that one with data cost more than the system, you know, would cost more work than value to the system? So there are others because I've been to others I'm sure that it also is not smart for the LCS to put all of its eggs in one basket and just have one trainer, you know, because that trainer could de-evolve into something ugly. That trainer could have have issues. So it is evolving. Evolution's open-ended. No, no way to tell for sure where it's going to end up or how it's going to end up. There's free will. So I would suspect it would want enough that if any of them go belly up, it wouldn't be left with no more assets.
So that leaves us with more than one, but you know, probably less than a hundred. You know, that's sort of an attitude. So I'm just, you know, winging it here as far as the numbers. You know, I'm, I'm just doing things that seem plausible to me. So a limited, much smaller than infinite. And then um, does every uh, PMR have a unique history? Uh, country names, businesses, technologies, sort of, because that's sort of the way entities interact. But remember, others, other um, PMRs aren't going to necessarily produce dogs and cats and horses and humans. You know, that's just what happened to evolve here. Other, other things may evolve different kinds of avatars. Now, I would expect that the system would make it such that it would eventually, any PMR would eventually produce avatars that have interesting choices, interesting to consciousness, which means social systems, interactive, people interacting with each other. So, yes, they'd all end up with social systems. Otherwise, they wouldn't be very interesting to the, to the system. The choices wouldn't be all that great. So they're going to be social systems. And when they're social systems, you're going to have things like commerce, trade, businesses, technologies will develop. Yes, you'll have that sort of thing. You'll have groups. You have different groups, you know, whether they'll call themselves countries or not, but they will have their own history. Yeah, they'll have all of that because that's the nature of social systems. You know, large social systems, a social system with 10 people in it won't do that, but a social system with a million people in it will do that. It will create these kinds of things because they all have free will just like we do, because if they don't have free will, then the PMR is useless. It isn't going to help anybody grow up. So, yes, they will be like that, but that doesn't mean they'll look like humans. It doesn't mean they'll... they'll uh, you know, develop just as we do. They'll evolve in their own way, but they will have all of the, the the basic functions of social systems, of beings that make ethical and moral choices. A lot of these PMRs, Tom, have humanoid type. No, I wouldn't say all of them have humanoid Not all type. Of them. Most of them do. Most of them have something, you know, the ones that I've been to, the, the humanoid kind of individual. Um, well, I, I guess from what you're saying, Donna, you could say that, that it's a humanoid type and that they're kind of like us, but they don't have to look like us. You know, they don't have yeah. to have a head and shoulders and a waist and, you know, feet and, you know, five fingers on each hand and five mm -hmm. toes on each foot. You know, they don't have to be like that. But, yeah, they are sort of like us in the sense that they're individuals and they they have choices to make and they have to survive within the constraints of their environment and they, need to, they want to prosper and they have relationships, they have significant others, you know, they have uh, procreation. So all of those basic things that we have that kind of make us the way we are are going to be in these other reality frames as well. 
So the system's resources are are limited. It's not right. so large. Um, that kind of puts a lot of responsibility on on us for maintaining the um, a better quality of our of our system. Yeah. Well, system resources are always limited. The the larger constant system is not an infinite system. It has finite resources. It's Resources are also limited. That's why there's that sweet spot. You know, the only reason you have that sweet spot that uh, it's it's not worth. You know, the the one more person growing up doesn't add that much to the system because the system already has so many billions or trillions of people in it. One more doesn't add a whole lot to the overall entropy of the whole, but it costs something to to send it. Cost would be no issue if the system were were uh, infinite. There would be no cost. Well, there would be a cost, but it, it would be irrelevant what the cost was. If you got anything extra back at all, then it, the cost would be worth it if the system was infinite. So, yes, a finite system means that you have to interact with other people within limited resources. So that creates a lot of interesting connections between people and the things they do. The fact that the resources are never infinite produces a lot of the interest in the choices that are made. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, we'll move on to the next question. There's a lot of elements to this one, but I think I can um, condense this down a bit for the time we have left. Uh, the question from the MBT forum is on preparing for death. Tom, do you have any practical MBT-related tips for preparing for death? I don't think of general hints like evolve while you're in this reality. I would like to know if you can recommend any concrete behaviors for the process of dying. And he gives a few examples of... Um, thinking about how your life is going while you're alive, think about what you want to do or what you want to ask after death and things like that. Um, I'm keen on living, and most of the time life is fun, but I'm also very curious what comes next, and I'd like to be prepared for it. Well, being prepared for it would also uh, take in not being afraid of it. So losing one's fear of death would be a, one way that you could prepare for it. Um, the way you do that is by experiencing the larger reality and realizing that your consciousness and you're immortal, that the death is only the death of an avatar and You'll go get another one of those, you know, so then death kind of loses its sting. You've always got another experience packet after that. So even if your experience packet you're in is, is somehow dysfunctional or didn't get off to a good start or other things, well, you'll have another and another and another. So understanding that at the being level, which means it has to be a part of your experience before it's a part of your truth, which means you have to get out there and and realize that this is, you know, the way it is, then if you have that as your experience, then the fear of death will go away and uh, it uh, will no longer be a problem. 
you know, I'd heard somebody else say, it wasn't me, said that you should live each day as if it were your last. If this was your last day, you know, what would you do? You probably wouldn't go to work. You know, you, you would, you probably would change a lot of things, you know, if this was your last day. But they say, in as much as you can, in as much as is practical, you know, live your life as if each day were your left was your last. In other words, don't spend a lot of your energy on things that aren't significant, that aren't important. You know, relationships are important. That's where we grow up. Spend your time on things that are important, growing. You know, don't spend your time, you know, sitting on a, on a couch with four or five other people, none of you talking or interacting with each other, but you're all watching a sitcom, you know. Rather, turn off the sitcom and the four or five of you talk to each other, you know, interact. You'll learn more that way. So spend your time doing things that help you grow up, that help you connect. And relationships with other people are one of the key ways to do that because those are the things that basically bring out your limitations. Those are the things that show you, you know, where your, your, your fears are where your ego is, you know, your, the buttons that we talk about, you know, somebody pushed my button. Well, those buttons are just your fear and ego and beliefs. Those are your buttons. Well, work on getting rid of those buttons, you know, work on caring and giving rather than seeing other people as being able to do something for you. That is the key thing. If you've done that, by the time you get to the point that you're dying, you'll look back at a life that was full, that was happy, that you're proud you know, to have lived. You'll look back and it'll be, well, I, you know, I did the best I could with what I had. Now I'll go on to do something else. But you'll feel good about the fact that you grew up. You changed the level of entropy in your consciousness this time. You know, like they, like they say, I've heard this said a lot, says nobody lies on their deathbed wishing that they had put in more hours at the office. You know, it just doesn't happen. You know, you, you, you regret the things that were important that you didn't do, like spend time with family. You know, have, you know, have friends, get to know people, care, give help people. And if you do that, if you stay cognizant of that, then when you get to the time when you're ready to go, you'll be ready to go. You will have done it. And you will have done well, even if you go early, you know, in an accident of some sort, you'll still have that feeling of satisfaction that you did as much as you could. That's because like we said earlier, instead of wandering around clueless, not knowing what the game's about, you know, you're in the playing field, all right, because you've got this, this, uh, this, I, you know, this body here. You've got this avatar, so you're in the game. But if you have no clue what the game's about, well, you're not going to do very well. Likely, you're not going to do nearly as well as if you really understood why you were here. So stay focused on what's important. Uh, stay focused on the things that can help you grow up. Be aware of learning. Be aware of your lessons. And if you do that, 
I think by the time you get around to your avatar is ready to quit, then you'll have, you'll feel good about the whole thing. And if you don't have a fear of death, then you'll feel good that the next avatar you take on, you're going to take on at a little higher level than what you took on this one. And that's good. So that'll make the whole thing positive rather than negative. I think what people regret is wasting their time doing things that weren't important, that didn't help them grow up. Like not painting that room purple, you know. <laughs> You're not going to be on your deathbed and say, oh, boy, I'm glad I didn't paint that room, you know. <laughs> you might think, oh, I did paint that room, and my wife and I, we had a really good time doing that. That was fun. You might think of that, but you probably won't think that, well, I'm really glad I didn't paint that room. You see, it's the things you do with other people. It's the stuff you give that's important. And as long as you have that as your focus, then I think the time you die, you will be ready because your body's old, it has aches, it has pains, it has limitations, and you're ready to get a new one, start over, have another adventure. And you won't need any special preparation for that if you've done all of the yeah. other things. So right. he, had, he does have another part of the question. Um, is the basic process of dying the same for everyone, no matter how evolved he or she is? Can evolved people stay conscious enough to keep their memories because they're not attached to them or bothered by them? Well, no, it's not the same for everybody, uh, no matter how evolved they are. Those that are more evolved go through less process. If you if you are more evolved, then you don't need to be greeted by your, you know, dead family members and told that it's okay and everything will be all right and go over here and stand in line. You don't have that decompression process of letting go. You let go immediately. It's done. You're ready to start something else. And you go from, from uh, dying to, well, what am I going to do next? And is there any way that I can plan this such that I raise the probability of me, you know, evolving more? What are the things I need to work on? Anything special I should, you know, I should be working on here that seems to be a problem lifetime after lifetime. Let's look and find those. So you immediately start the process of planning your next incarnation. You don't have to do the letting go thing. You're not, you don't need that anymore. So that's what somebody who's, who's more evolved goes right to what's important next thing you may look back over your life and look at things that didn't work well and try to learn from them you know so a life review might be handy to show you the things where your weak points were and the things that didn't work out so well and why didn't they work out what was the problem there where was, what was the fear that created that difficulty and how you dealt with things so yeah focusing on what's next is what those who have been around and have grown up do. And for those who are more beginning, they show up kind of worried and a little frightened, particularly if they wonder whether they're in heaven or hell, you know, and they, they want some reassurance and they need a little handholding that everything's going to be all right and that sort of thing. So they take longer to process, but the process is not that difficult. Everybody goes through it pretty 
easily. It's not that hard process to get through. He's got another part, but I think it has been answered. Um, how do you plan your dying process? You have said you already know how you will probably die. Any preparations? But I think you may have covered that. Do you have anything else to add? Yeah. Well, you know, after a while, you can always look in the future probability and see what's what your own likely death is. You know, about how old am I going to be and where am I going to be and who am I going to be with? And you can go look at your own death. But that's just a probable future. It's not necessarily what's going to happen. You can do that, and maybe that would give you some set you at ease. But if you if you still have the fear, then all it do is set up another fear. Oh no, I recognize that from the you know, am I going to die now? You know, and then you'd have all this these issues around it. So if you've got fear, I'd leave that one alone. <laughs> I think it's probably something you just would soon not know. You know, but. If you're past that point of having fear, then that's one thing you can do. But preparing for death is basically living a really good and productive life. That prepares you for that prepares you for death. Feeling positive when it comes time to exit, looking forward to that exit and feeling positive about it. One one little last statement he has is what is the difference between first hand experience and guessing? And I'm I'm guessing he's meaning intuition. So, well, if he means intuition, intuition is not guessing. Guessing means you have no idea, but you're going to take a guess. Or guessing, maybe you do have some ideas. Maybe you have a little history or a little data that might tell you something, but not enough data to tell you exactly how it's going to end up. So then you guess. Getting data from a database is different than guessing. It's the intuitive side can get information. That information can be just as reliable and just as um, what um, uh, what should I say? Re- you know, reliable and accurate. It can be just as reliable and just as accurate as data that comes through the intellect, data that comes through the physical processes. So that's not guessing. That's just getting data from a database. I'm not sure what his question was. Uh, Information that you get normally and information you get intuitively, there's two different ways of processing information. So they should be, you know, if, if you have your intuitive side and your intellectual side both developed equally, then you use both. One of them's good at some things and not good at others, and the other is just the opposite. The one that one's not good at, the other one is good at. So the two are very complementary for each other. A good intuitive side and a good intellectual side will optimize your ability to deal with life. Yeah, it seems like a firsthand experience and guessing, um, both of those things could be kind of intellectual. So I think... Adding right. that intuition would yeah. be the would be the better yeah. better thing. Well, that wraps it up for today, everyone. Thank you all for your wonderful questions, and we'll see you next time. Yes, thank you, everyone. We did have a lot of very good questions this time. Uh, did a little more technical 
uh, here than we usually do, but that's interesting too. So uh, if you have a uh, little extra coins in your pocket, please send them to Oliver. And uh, <laughs> Oliver needs to pay the people who who uh, who is run the server that that does this. So uh, uh, Oliver could always use a little extra uh, money to help pay the bills. And uh, I don't know whether Justin uh, has a has a button up here or not, but uh, if not, he should because he, he should. Spends, he spends yeah. hours and hours <laughs> editing this this stuff and. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if you've if those listening have ever done video editing, but if you do, you can imagine if somebody hands you a three-hour video, you know, that's a lot of editing. You know, they have you know, video editors have this ratio about how many hours of video to how many hours of editing, and there's a whole lot of hours of editing for every hour of video. So uh, yeah, it's we, about three or four we, times. We ought to get, we ought to get uh, Justin a a, a a donate button. So, For sure. so people, people <laughs> appreciate his labor as well. But both of their websites will be on the fireside chat. There'll be links yeah. to the websites now. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks. you, everyone. Yeah. Thanks, so everyone. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.